Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that your spirit is with us and moving in this place. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts, moved by your spirit, would be acceptable in your side, our God, our rock and redeemer. Amen. I was, um, I was here in Fitzroy a year ago, times over the past year, but last year I, I was speaking here, and fair play to you if you remember, but I was talking about uh, Mark's gospel and how Mark tells the big story of his gospel and how he tells particular stories in that big story and how they speak to us. Now, I'm basically a, a one-trick pony, if you can even consider what I do a trick. But I want to think this morning about a couple more stories from Mark's gospel. Actually, that a few months ago, someone opened up a little bit to me, and I found uh, really powerful. I'm privileged I get to teach uh, a little bit of Mark's gospel to some students. Uh, and one of the things I hope they really get is that Mark is a terrific storyteller. He's a terrific storyteller. Uh, think of Mark uh, like a film director. Film directors, they are the storytellers of our age, aren't they? Film directors, they, they bring together uh, shots and scenes and contrasting images and developing characters and dialogue. And they mold them. And they time them, they put them in the right places to create a story to tell, to convey a message to us, the movie watchers. And the best films have some of the most thought-provoking, lasting things to say. I heard it said on the radio the other day, the best films carry on, in fact, they really get going after the final credits. When they leave what they've said, working on you. What's that about? What did I make of that? But to truly get something from a film, you do have to pay attention to it. So take the two stories we heard in today's passage that Neville read to us. And sure, if you've got the handout and you've got the stories in front of you, it would be useful to have them there. I guess many people brought up with some knowledge of Bible stories have come across the two stories we heard today before. Maybe even in your childhood. There's a story about Jairus' daughter, the girl who dies, but Jesus brings her back to life. And then there's the woman who's been bleeding, but she touches Jesus' cloak, and she's healed. And we probably take them as stories which tell us about the amazing power of Jesus to heal, to, to bring back to life. And surely they're that. But I don't know about you, but in my mind, apart from Jesus doing powerful healing on two, two females, they've never really had much connection in my mind. Which is funny, because Mark tells the two stories together. In fact, he does this thing that he often does in his gospel, which is where he tells one story, but smack in the middle of it, 
he tells another. So he starts one story, tells another, and comes back to the first. The idea is that the inside story and the outside story help interpret each other. So one example is where the disciples later on in Mark's gospel are sitting in the boat and they just cannot grasp who Jesus is. They just don't get it. Mark moves then to a story of Jesus healing a man born blind. He can see. And then we move back to the disciples with Jesus. And Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of God. And the story of Jesus giving physical sight to the blind man illustrates the spiritual insight given to the disciples. Mark does this all the time throughout his gospel. In fact, scholars have a name for it. They call it the Markan sandwich. Not very creative, but you know what it is. Bread, jam, bread. What it means that when Mark intertwines these accounts together, he's a film director who's wanting us to go away with more than just two independent stories in their own right. If I could give Mark a, a catchphrase for what he wants to get across... Uh, It's there on the front of your announcement sheets. For want of a title, I called it this. Mark wants to say, it's not just the stories, it's the way I tell them. It's not just the stories I tell, which are good, but particularly, it's the way I tell them. So if we want to grasp the powerful message of Mark's film, we need to pay attention and slow up and watch and listen carefully. So I want to do that with these two stories together and, and watch them together, but I want to start at the beginning of the film and fast forward really quickly up to this point. So at the beginning of Mark's film, Jesus, uh, who Mark has regard, regarded from the start as God's promised and anointed king, he arrives on the scene and he starts saying, the kingdom of God is near. Uh, and he begins healing and teaching people in a way that seems to give a taster of what this kingdom is going to be like. And he becomes quite famous quite quickly. Crowds gather around him. But he starts to show that he's more than some kind of celebrity healer. He's interested even more in forgiving people's sins, we find out, selling them right with God. Although his claim to be able to do this and the way he goes about things sets him in stark opposition with the religious leaders of the day who suggest his power really can't be of God. Nevertheless, Jesus has been gathering these disciples who are trying to grasp who he is and what he's about, and he's been teaching them about the kingdom of God. He's been telling them it's powerful, it's radical, it's fruitful. It's inevitable. But he remains quite an enigmatic figure. Who is this guy who can calm the storms, say the disciples? And then local people who see Jesus cast demons into a herd of pigs say, do we really want this discomforting man affecting our lives? Nevertheless, a big crowd are still keen to follow him around and see what he does. And so at the start of our passage, Mark chapter 5, verse 21, we find this crowd by the lake, 
with Jesus. And you can imagine the scene. Israel is experiencing a kind of Northern Irish weather. Uh, sun's shining, rippling off the waves. There's the crowd. There's Jesus. That's what the camera's picking up on. Uh, except Mark's camera starts to focus in on one particular person. We call him Jairus. We're told he's a ruler, a leader in the synagogue. Well known, I guess. Possibly well respected. And he comes down and he falls at Jesus' feet and he says, Jesus, my little girl is dying. Would you please come and put your hands on her so she can live? And you can feel the emotion. You feel that passion and compassion. And so Jesus goes with him and the camera pulls out and we see Jesus heading purposefully on his way with Jairus and this whole crowd now thinking, now here's going to be something, and they follow on. So the crowd walks on, but again, Mark's camera picks up on one person in the crowd, this time a woman. She's trying to make her way to Jesus through this thronging crowd. Now we don't know her name, but we do know a bit about her. She's had this chronic, this ongoing bleed. Twelve years, twelve years. Twelve years she's been shedding blood and she can't stop it. She's been to several doctors, none of them have helped. There's there's a great line, isn't there, in the Bible? Um, She suffered a great deal under many doctors. (laughs) Maybe they weren't any good. Maybe their treatments were horrific, but useless. Anyway, she spent everything she has on trying to find help. Her savings are gone, but she's no better. In fact, she's getting worse. How are you picturing this woman as the camera picks her up? How do you see her? She's going to be gaunt, isn't she? Pale, bloodless. We don't know how old she was 12 years ago, but she's going to have aged more than 12 years in that time. Her creased face, that's not from laughter lines. She's poor. She's hopeless. She looks, she feels wretched. And what do other people make of her, this aging, bleeding woman? I guess people from her community know her story. The gossip's going to go round, isn't it? The poverty is evident. The blood probably smells. You can imagine that as she's trying to make her way through, the people who know her are trying not to be touched by her. But she's heard about Jesus. He's powerful. He heals. She knows this. It almost radiates out of him. If she could only touch him, That could be our hope. That could be our only hope. It could be our last hope. So she works her way through, and as she gets to him, she manages it. Immediately, we're told she's healed. Immediately, she touches him. She's healed. She feels it. The blood dries up. It stops flowing out of her and starts flowing 
within her. And life and colour and fullness start coming back to her face. And the camera starts picking it up. And as the crowd surges on in complete ignorance, we still see this woman back lost in the crowd, feeling alive again. But she's not the only one who felt it. Jesus felt it too. He felt the power go out from him, we're told. Now, what do you expect Jesus to say or do at this point? He's felt the power go out from him. We imagine, knowing who Jesus is, this son of God, who can know people's thoughts and hearts, who knows the power has gone out from him. I mean, it's in his gift to know what happened and who it was, isn't it? He knows it was her, doesn't he? So what would you imagine the Jesus we might know would do? As he walks along, he would find her, he would make eye contact, tender smile. You know, I know. And go on. But no. He stops. Who touched my clothes? Who touched my clothes? Well, the disciples. They think, come on. That is thronging around here. About ten people are touching your clothes at any one point. How can you ask, who touched your clothes? Come on, we've got to get to this girl. But no, who touched my clothes? Jesus stops, the whole crowd stops. It's like that awkward moment in assembly, isn't it? Where the principal says, no one is leaving this room until the person responsible steps forward. She must be able to bear it no longer. So she, she comes forward, and she too, down on her knees, falls before Jesus. So it was me. I'm the bleeding woman. I touched you. Daughter, says Jesus. Daughter, go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Well, fair enough, some words of compassion from Jesus there. Although, be freed from your suffering? Sounds a little bit unnecessary. I mean, she already was when she touched him, wasn't she? Jesus calls her out in public. It just feels a little uneasy, doesn't it? A little awkward, Jesus making such a thing of it. Such a private person, such a private issue. And suddenly he's saying, I'm making this public. Who was it? Really, Jesus? Well, the words of Jesus to this woman are still on his lips, and we're still processing all of this, when Mark's camera captures a whole new group of people striding into view and making for Jairus, the synagogue ruler. We hadn't forgotten about him. We just moved to another story. We're back with Jairus and these people and they're front and centre of the camera and they're clearly messengers from his house. And we hear the message. Jairus, your daughter's dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. We've turned smack bang into the first story again, but it's too late. It's too late. 
The woman Jesus is called daughter has been healed, but Jairus' little daughter, she's dead. Did the bleeding woman hold Jesus up? Maybe, but it was probably too late anyway. Could Jesus have done something about it if he got there on time? Surely, but now it's too late. You can, you can hear from the tone of it. Let Jairus, <coughs> let Jesus go. Let your daughter go. Come home and grieve. But we're not the only ones who've uh, overheard this heartbreaking news. Jesus has too. And at this point, he seems to take command of the situation. Don't fear, he says. Don't fear. Just believe. And he strides on with Jairus, bewildered probably. And Peter and James and John and the crowd are thinking, wow, now we've got to see this. But Jesus says, no, no, no. You're not coming with the whole crowd stay there. You're not coming with this. This is going to be no public spectacle. The five of them go on. And they arrive at the house. And yet they find there's pretty public grieving going on there too. The wider family, the friends, the community, they're already there. Uh, and they're weeping and they're wailing. This is grief, first century Israel style. Uh, and surely it should be so, shouldn't it? A young girl has died and the family and the community they're devastated so there's commotion there's weeping and there's wailing and Jesus sees this and he goes into where they all are and if we expect Jesus to say anything it's probably something like okay don't fear only believe listen I'm the resurrection and the life I'm going to show you that I have power to raise people from the dead that's kind of what we expect the Jesus we know to say, isn't it? But no, again. He just says, What's all the commotion? What's all the weeping and wailing? She's only sleeping. Really? Now, I wonder if many of us are probably Christianized enough to feel that he's using a metaphor. That is the idea of death being like sleep. So when Jesus says she's only sleeping, what he means is that she's going to wake up into new life. It's just a a metaphor for death. Uh, uh, A maybe. But look at how people at the time take it, and that's a good guide. They laugh at him. Not like he said a joke, but out of ridicule. Sleeping? They don't think he's using a metaphor. They take Jesus literally at his word. They think he's suggesting that she is only asleep. And they think, no, no, she's sick and now she's dead. What are you talking about? And neither Mark, the film director, or Jesus, the character, make any effort to say that this is a metaphor. They just leave it out there, leaving the crowd to think that Jesus thinks she's literally asleep. A little odd? A little enigmatic again? Anyway, with that thought, Jesus puts everyone out of the house and he goes in there to the girls' room with just a mother and a father and those with him, the three disciples. And here we are in this small enclosure. No crowds, no wider family and friends, something much, much more private. 
And Jesus takes the girl by the hand and says, Talitha Koo, the real, tender, life-giving words of Jesus, little girl, rise up. And she does. She gets up from her bed and she walks. She's, after all, not a toddler or an infant. She's a 12-year-old girl. 12? We heard that number before? And all of them, all five of them in that room are astonished. Astonished because before Jesus spoke, they saw that she was dead, wasn't she? I mean, a mother of all people would know she was dead. She wasn't sleeping. She was dead. And Jesus brought her back to life, but he says, don't tell anyone about this. I'm serious. Strictly no one. Just give her something to eat. She must be famished. What do we make of this? Jesus, compassionate, tender, private, unlike with that leading woman, but secretive, enigmatic, ambiguous with his words. The parents and the disciples know what happened from death to life. And now much later the truth is out and so do we. But everyone else is slightly led up the garden path, aren't they? To think she was sleeping. To think they got it wrong. What is Jesus about here? What is Mark about in telling these two stories together? Two daughters. One who suffered for 12 years. That's the lifetime of the other. One, a very private situation which Jesus seems to make awkwardly and embarrassingly public. One, a very public situation which Jesus, throwing up a smokescreen, makes very private and secret. Just think for a minute about the bleeding woman. However private she's tried to be about that chronic bleed, it's come with a very public reputation, hasn't it? Of poverty, of uncleanliness, of curse. Who would have anything to do with her? We imagined her isolated. So say Jesus healed her physically and let it go at that. She would know. Jesus would know. But who else would have known? Who else would have believed her? You say you're healed, but you've said that ten times after being to ten different doctors. Would the true community truly accept her? But Jesus makes sure they know. Everyone knows, thanks to Jesus, that this woman who was unclean has now been made clean. And he's not restored only her health and hope, but her place in the community. She's not only been physically liberated, spiritually liberated after 12 years of suffering, she's been socially liberated too. Daughter, be freed from your suffering, he said. Well, the physical affliction went with a touch of the cloak. The social affliction went with his very public words. He made it public for her sake. But what about the girl? The woman that bled for 12 years, this daughter's only 12 herself. She has a whole life ahead of her. In fact, 
At 12, she's coming of age, marrying age. In this culture, at 12, she goes from girl to woman. Through puberty, she becomes marriable. And in this culture, marriage is her future. Marriage is her hope. Marriage is her parents' hope. But who would marry a ghost? Who would seriously marry the girl who died? You know and I know that is what she would be forevermore. She would come with that eccentric, unusual baggage of which any family, any son looking to marry would say, well, she's a lovely girl, but I'm not going to marry her. You can never shift that social uncleanliness of actually having been dead. There's no security, there's no money, there's no hope in this culture for the family of a she died, you know, girl. All the crowds in the community know that. So Jesus only takes witnesses in on a need-to-know basis. Outside, he lights a smoke screen. She's only sleeping, which we can take in a spiritual, metaphorical way as a true word about her death but which Jesus isn't at all bothered if the crowds outside choose to take in a literal way. Because when the girl comes out fed and walking, their incredulity and the rumour is strong enough to spread. Maybe she was just sleeping. Maybe we made a mistake about him, about her actually dying. Maybe she was just very sick and Jesus made her better again. I mean, it's not like he's going to raise anyone from the dead now. Showing Jesus has the power to raise from the dead is is good for Mark here. But it's not the whole interest in the story. Jesus' interest is actually in restoring the girl. Not just physically or even spiritually, but socially again. A girl no longer to be given a wide berth, but to be wed. To have a hope. To have a future. So listen, these two stories, they clearly are about Jesus' power, which is amazing, incredible. It exudes from his clothes. It heals. It raises the dead. He's awesome. But they're clearly stories Mark tells about Jesus' purpose too. In weaving together these stories, Mark tells us that Jesus brings life in all its fullness. Spiritual, physical, emotional, mental, social. And he encourages us to be a people, to be a church. Uh, uh, And maybe at this point I want to say, this is a reputation I think Fitzroy has. And I want to really encourage you in. To be a church that reflects the king and his kingdom liberating women and men and the young and the old and the families and the shamed and the hopeless and the avoided and the marginalized and the broken in every way, liberating them and giving them a community to be part of, a hope and a future with God's people. 
Mark's telling us these stories to show us that Jesus brings fullness of life in different ways for people in their different situations. Some people have public and sensational experiences, some very private journeys. Some people go through long and painful times. Others have a moment in an instant. But just like the woman and Jairus, stories encouraging us to keep coming to Jesus' feet, to look to Jesus. And even when it's challenging or discomforting, to trust that he knows, even better than we do, he knows what he is doing for us and for others. And Mark's telling us these stories to show that with Jesus we have a new name, we have a new identity. We no longer need to be defined by our past or our pain or our fears or social stigma or even our worldly status. You see, in this story, no longer will she be known as that bleeding woman. But the woman whose life Jesus touched. How does she think of herself? I'm a daughter of Christ. Never will this be the once dead girl, but the young woman whose life Jesus touched. And no longer will Jairus primarily be known as a synagogue leader. Three times we're told in the story, that's what he is. But at the end, what is he? The child's father. The father of the girl whose life Jesus touched. The guy whose household Jesus touched. Everybody now defined primarily by their lives being touched by Jesus. And how that speaks to us about how we see ourselves and how we want to be seen and how we see others. Let me leave it there with you. A film, a good film, really gets going at the end. What is God, through the storytelling of Mark, saying to you about Jesus and his kingdom? And may that message be at work in all of us. Amen.